Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Matthew Ichihashi Potts. Matthew was appointed the Pusey Minister in the Memorial Church and the Plummer Professor of Christian Morals in 2021. Matt has served on the faculty at Harvard Divinity School since 2013 and has focused his teaching on sacramental and moral theology, ministry and pastoral theology, religion and literature, and preaching. He's the author of two books, Cormac McCarthy and the Signs of Sacrament, Literature, Theology, and the Moral of Stories, and Forgiveness, an Alternative Account, which is where we'll be spending most of our time. He has also published scholarly essays in several leading journals and invited essay collections. And he sits on the editorial board of the journal Literature and Theology. He's also the co-host of the podcast, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. As someone who's not that much a Harry Potter person. I found that quite interesting, but I want to welcome Matthew to the show. How are you? I'm great, Philip. Thanks for having me. You know, I'm, I actually, I'm a little bit too old for Harry Potter, but I was roped into this podcast from students who, who appreciate the series. And then my kids like the series. So that's how I got into it. Okay. That's it. That's yeah. interesting. You know, and you know, it's funny with me and Harry Potter because I'm, I'm actually growing up, I was a big fan of like fantasy and science fiction. And I, I read everything, but that was like where my leisure reading was. But by the time Harry Potter became a thing, I just wasn't that into it. Yeah. I was in college. Right. So it just didn't seem like it was for me. Yeah. Yeah. And then, it, and I still read a lot of fantasy, but it just kind of annoyed me that like, he was, he never seemed really good at wi- at being a wizard. <laughs> and that, that just pissed me off. It's like, yeah. why are the books named after you? Right. Like you kind of aren't that good at this. Yeah. And it, it just, but I also don't know deeply, right? I've seen like bits of the movies here and there, but I don't know. Maybe, maybe he's a good wizard. I don't know. Well, this is interesting because on my reading of it, I know that I know that the, <laughs> this this is we're not supposed to be talking about Harry Potter, but I think that one of the things that the series is doing is it's trying to problematize the sort of messianic hero worship of a single figure, and so like the point is that like everyone thinks Harry's the one, Harry's the one, but by the end of the series, what you figure out is that oh no, it's the whole community has to rally. Like we can't do this. No one can do this on their own, even. The boy who lived or whatever but if folks want to hear more about that they can listen to my my podcast <laughs> not this one <laughs> absolutely we're not we're not going to go um too far off the rails even though this is a show that prides itself on being able to take meandering journeys from from um from time to time but um forgiveness an alternative account and i jokingly said at the beginning of this before i even hit record you know light topic right but um not a light topic right like this is actually you know, this is a, a topic that I think covers and, and touches on so many other related topics and, and really touches on how our world works in, in many ways. And, you know, for a long time, listeners of the show, they'll know that I'm not a religious person. I, I am an atheist, so I'm not one that has a, a Christian faith or any faith for that matter. But interestingly enough, being Black, those who, in case listeners might not know because they're not seeing me, I'm Black. Right. Um, I feel like all black people are kind of religious, <laughs> like <laughs> in a weird way, like even those who are like, man, 
I don't believe all that God stuff. Like, come on, dude. Black people just have this this kind of really interesting relationship with faith that from a cultural perspective, I always find very interesting, even though I, I grew up in what I call like a tacit kind of Christian home. My family was Anglican, so Church of England. And it was a kind of it was a kind of religion of say your prayers before meals, before you go to bed, kind of a mention of God, but we never went to church ever. You know, then I had a crush on a girl in junior high school that was a Pentecostal Christian. So I was like, let me read this Bible business because that's going to be the only, that's going to be the only way she'll ever like me. I was like 12. Right. Then I went through my angsty kind of existentialism phase in high school. And then I've been off the ranch ever since. (laughs) So that's, that's my faith. That's my faith journey. Um, But I find all of this stuff incredibly religious. I'm um, interesting. So these are sort of like my disclaimers. But what I found that was so incredibly relevant and interesting about the book is that framed in a humanical light, but touches on, like I said, all things in our world. And so I'm curious to start with forgiveness as a concept. You know, you you spend quite a bit of time defining it in the book, but I want to give you an opportunity to to lay out why, what A, your definition of it, and then why you thought it was important to take this alternative accounting of forgiveness. Yeah. You know, Philip, it's interesting that you you kind of pose the question within the context of religion, because I have, you know, I'm I'm a pastor, I'm the minister at Harvard, and this is a book that engages Christian theology. But one of the things it's also trying to do is to use for to use this attempt to diagnose the problems with religious forgiveness as, I mean, this is not, this is kind of understated in the book. It's the implication of the book, which is also trying to diagnose the problems with religion, right? With religious belief, right? And the the problems I see with religion and people who, you know, places where I find religion not credible are like in sort of facile triumphalism. Like everything's going to be okay just because it's going to be okay. Or there's a sweet hereafter, which will redeem everything we're going through, like faith in those things I I have trouble with. And I think the religious traditions lean too heavily into those things too often. And one of the places it leans too heavily into those things, I think, is around forgiveness. Like this for Christianity, a central moral practice where Jesus talks a lot about forgiveness in the Lord's Prayer. Uh, you know, but kind of the only moral commandment in the Lord's Prayer is forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, right? Like forgiveness is really central to it, which really raises the stakes on what forgiveness is. And if you get forgiveness wrong, or if I would say you get forgiveness wrong, that can lead to a lot of problems. So one way to approach the question of like how I define forgiveness is how I don't define it or what I define it against or the problems I see with it in contemporary culture, especially Christian and religious culture, which is that it seems to me that in kind of conventional wisdom or colloquial usage, forgiveness, the the notion of forgiveness has collapsed into other adjacent concepts, which I think are unhelpful and sometimes harmful, right? So One thing we often mean just colloquially when we say, I forgive you, or when someone forgives us is, I think we often mean just like, I'm not angry anymore. Like my anger is, I'm finished with my anger. Now, right now, we don't have to deal with my anger anymore. I forgive you. Let's move on. Right. And that anxiety about anger, I think is, worries me because then forgiveness becomes about sort of regulating, especially if we think that victims have an obligation to forgive, as the Christian tradition says, that means that that victims have an obligation to not be angry, then it becomes about policing their affect, about disciplining their emotions. And that's just, that's hard because hurt hurts. I mean, when people have been wounded, 
by the world or by others, their emotions are stirred up and they are going to feel things like trauma leads to affective emotional response. And people who have been harmed, I think they have a right to feel angry, right? Like, I think Christian ethics should not be in the business of policing people's feelings. It should be about reflecting upon what you do with those feelings. Like, how do you act, right? And so I worry about forgiveness becoming equated with the, the policing of affect, the policing of emotion, telling people, telling victims especially, oh, no, you, if you're going to forgive me, you're not allowed to be angry at me anymore, right? The most compelling examples of, of forgiveness that I see are people who are, who are willing to say, no, I am angry at you because you harmed me. I forgive you. But I'm still angry because the harm has not been redressed or whatever. So then that makes me think, okay, what is forgiveness, right? So if it's not getting up anger, it's something else. If I can be angry and still forgive you, what is it? And I'll bracket that for a second. The other thing that I think forgiveness too often and often harmfully collapses with is the notion of reconciliation, right? So like when I say I forgive you, it means, okay, we're good. Let's restore our relationship. Or my offer of forgiveness is what restores our relationship. So you know, one of the people I'm respect most in the world who's you know died recently is desmond tutu and he led uh the truth and reconciliation commission in south africa he was part of the the anti-apartheid movement in south africa i'm also anglican right i come out of the episcopal tradition so he's a, a figure of me of great importance one of the things he did during the truth and reconciliation commissions was use the language of forgiveness a lot because because that language of forgiveness is really powerful as much as I love and respect Desmond Tutu, I worry about the collapsing of those two things together, forgiveness and reconciliation, right? Because, you know, I might, I may be willing to forgive you, but not ready to trust you, right? Like you may not have earned my respect or my trust yet, or you may not have made the appropriate amends for us to be in proper relationship with each other. But I think colloquially, when we say forgiveness, I forgive you, I think what we mean is I'm not angry, so let's move on and restore relationship, right? Okay, so if it's not those two things, what is it? I think it's a couple of things. I think it is... I'm going to give you a few definitions that all kind of okay. I'll take I'll take a few. Kind of hang that I think hang together, right? I think it is a promise of non-retaliation. Like what you're saying is, I am not going to harm you the way you harmed me. Doesn't mean I'm not going to be angry at you. Doesn't mean I'm going to trust you. Doesn't mean that we're good or that you don't owe me something or at least an you know an apology, but maybe some amends before I can trust you and we can reconcile. But what's not going to happen is I'm not going to do to you what you did to me. Right. That is that's part of it. Another way to define it, it is forgiveness is the judgment that non-retaliation renders. Right. Because the other thing about forgiveness is that we often hear phrases like forgive and forget or it's okay, I forgive you. Like those kinds of phrases, right? To err is to err is human, to forgive is divine. Forgive is divine, yeah, right. But but this idea that like forgive and forget means like, oh, once I've forgiven you, that it's gone away now. Like now we don't have to think about it anymore. I don't think that's right. I think that can lead to some of the problems with reconciliation, unearned reconciliation that I also named. But if you think about forgiveness, if I say I forgive you, I can only forgive a wrong. So implied in any statement, I forgive you, is also the subtext, you harmed me, right? So there's actually no way to say to someone, I forgive you with also, without also rendering a judgment, which is saying, you have caused me harm. And if you're going to accept my forgiveness, that means you're also accepting that you have harmed me. And that means we have to move on to the idea of redress. How are you going to make it right? Right. And so like it's it's judgment, but it's non-retaliatory judgment. So it's like, I harm you, therefore, I mean, sorry, I judge you as having harmed me. Therefore, I'm going to harm you back. I think it takes a different posture, which is it's a non-retaliatory posture, which is like, I judge that you have harmed me. If you're going to accept this judgment or if we're going to move on, we need to figure out a way to move on, recognizing the truth that I have been harmed. Not forgetting the truth that I've been harmed, not bearing the truth that I'm harmed, not pretending that it wasn't a harm, like, oh, it's okay. No, saying like, it's not okay. I've been harmed. We need to move on. 
recognizing that the harm is now part of our shared history. And any future that we're going to build together has to be honest about this, this history. So it's not forgive and forget. It's, it's forgive and remember. Like to say, I forgive you means I remember. I'm not going to forget you harmed me. Right. And then the third thing that I, that this is kind of like, this is actually originally the, a version of the title for my book. My, my editor and press didn't like my title for the book. So it just became something else. So they scrapped it, but we're, we're going to talk about it here. <laughs> yeah. Right. That's right. I say forgiveness is a form of mourning. Right. I say forgiveness is a way of accepting harms which cannot be undone. I think vengeful retaliation is like a magical thinking way of thinking, oh, if I even the scales, I can get back what I lost. But vengeance doesn't do that. Right. Or like a magical kind of forgiveness, which is like, oh, if I forgive you, then the pain will go away and the harm will go away and we can move on to a new life. No, that new life is going to have to accept what has been lost. Forgiveness is saying, like, oh, I cannot get back what you have taken from me. And if the person is going to accept the forgiveness, right? Accept the offer of forgiveness. Then they also have to acknowledge, oh, I cannot, I harmed you and I can't get back what I took from you. If we are going to be reconciled, we have to figure out a way for us to live in the future in the wake of that loss and living into a future in the realistic and honest wake of loss. That's, that's mourning, right? And mourning is, this is a line I have for the book, but it's one I, I lean on a lot like mourning. And so forgiveness is a good, not because it feels good. Just like mourning is a good, even though it doesn't feel good. It's just what we need to do when we've lost something we can't get back. We have to figure out a way to live. And forgiveness is about figuring out a way to live. It's a, it's a form of surviving wrong that can't be made right. You know, I, I think all, all, so much of this is like a tremendous jumping off point, right? Because when I was going through the book, I kept coming back to how entangled so many of these concepts are. Right. Like we, we use so many of these words interchangeably and they have personal relationships with us. But then contextually, I'm always thinking about the societal ways in which those things work. Right. So you in your example, you have Desmond Tutu as an individual, as a as a as a pastor, he might have personal feelings toward forgiveness, but in the context of social apartheid and reckoning with all of that through a government and then the ensuing decades of public policy, you know, truth and reconciliation looks differently, right? So just to the micro and and macro of those things. And when you were going through your examples, one of the things I thought about, as I often do, is abolitionist practices and the notion of something like the death penalty, right? Like, I am adamantly and steadfast against the death penalty, right? But the death penalty is, you know, it's a it's an American, it's not only an American thing, but it is widely, I think, accepted in the United States. Not in every state, but in a lot of states, right? And the reason why I bring that up is that it to me, I always felt the death penalty was just state-sponsored revenge, right? And when you're talking about anger, forgiveness on an individual basis asks for, like you said, for us to say we're not angry, right? But when it's state-sponsored in the form of the just the so-called justice system, the way we the carceral state on the on its highest level, the death penalty, there's really no forgiveness built into our public policy, right? Like this is kind of another point, but I'll throw it in here. Like our carceral state is meant to punish, right? It's meant for revenge against a wrong. It's not meant to forgive, right? Yeah. How do we 
not so much reconcile, but I'm curious about your thoughts on how forgiveness works in that individual context and now in that larger state macro context. That's a great question, Philip. And I, I, this is to me why the stakes of something like forgiveness, of getting forgiveness right, are so high and why getting forgiveness wrong is so harmful, right? Because you're absolutely right. The, the American carceral system, the, the extent of it, and also the legacies of it, which reach back into European jurisprudence, right, are based upon a retaliatory framework for justice. Like, if you harm someone, they are harmed in return. That's what justice looks like, right? And it actually comes from the the Hebrew Bible, this the the eye for an eye and tooth for tooth, right? This is the, the Latin phrase for this is the lex talionis. I talk about this in the book, and lex means law, and talionis just means like like the law of like for like. Take out my eye, I take out your eye. You knock out my tooth, I knock out your tooth. You kill someone I love, I kill you, <laughs> right? Like that's life for life. Also, and and you can imagine, and I talk about this a little bit in the book. You can imagine you know, a few thousand years ago when this law was being codified, and it, it exists elsewhere in the ancient Near East, apart from the Hebrew Bible, like you can imagine how like that's a profoundly equalizing teaching. You know, when, if you're saying like the, the eye of a powerful man is equal to the eye of of a poor man, right? And like, you don't just get to push around the poor person because you, you knock their eye out. Like you can see how the intent behind it might be this kind of equality, but how in contemporary, especially industrialized punishment, how it just leads to absolutely excessive international kind of harm imposed upon folks, right? And it it is based upon this retaliatory framework. What justice looks like is I do to you what you did to me, and the state stands in for the me and decides that, you know, it's going to impose punishment upon people. This is why I use, I'm really kind of judicious, or I'm trying to be judicious about the language of non-retaliation. When I say forgiveness is non-retaliatory, you know, I, I, I did that on purpose because I think that when Jesus talks about forgiveness and the forgiveness that comes out of the New Testament is trying to take up some of the spirit of that teaching about retaliation, the lex talionis, which is each person's equal before God, but trying to, to turn it away from the idea of like equal punishment towards something else. Right. And that the forms of justice, if we think about forgiveness, then the forms of justice that start to arise look more like restorative justice, right? Not like, oh, the way to be fair is for me to pluck out your eye if you pluck my eye out. By the way, we don't do that, right? By the way, they almost, they never did that. We don't have any historical evidence that, you know, from a very early stage in the ancient Israelites didn't pluck out eyes. They just assigned a fee instead of plucking out an eye. They, there was always like this, uh, like the stand-in punishment instead of the actual like for like. More of a, more of a metaphor. <laughs> yeah, right. So it was never like for like. It's always something else. So it's always pointing to this idea of equality. How do we treat people equally? What I see going on in the, in the New Testament, the Christian New Testament, and I'll speak more religiously here, mm-hmm. is like what's equal between me and my enemy is that God loves us both, right? And so like what we need to do is figure out how to build a future together, how to accept what has been lost and figure how do we live with each other without harming each other anymore that means non-retaliation rather than retaliation that means restorative justice rather than retaliatory justice i mean you can see there there are scholars who worked on this stuff there's a book called um the scholar's name is timothy gorringe and the book's called god's just vengeance and it basically shows how christian theology's idea of sin and wrongdoing is a debt to be paid just is the psychology which structures all of criminal justice in the west (laughs) right and this is this is why I want to turn to mourning rather than a debt to be paid, right? Like if you take five dollars from me, you can pay me back, and then we're even, right? But that doesn't have anything to do with mourning. But if you if you wrong me in some fundamental way, or or 
or kill someone I love, like that can't be got back. There's no payment that, com- that compensates for that. We have to come up with a different solution than payment to live with that problem. We, we, have, to, we, have, to rest- we have to do like a different kind of justice, restorative, restorative justice. So yeah, yeah, you're going you're gonna to jump in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, but it's, but it's, you know, it's very, like one of my earliest recollections of this is sort of like what I call like the forgiveness gotcha, right? And, you know, I, I don't know if anyone's ever used that term before, but if it catches on, I want full credit for it. Sure. But it's okay. the, the forgiveness gotcha, right? And and I remember this in, you know, Dukakis versus Bush, right? They're having the debate and, you know, they they talk about like, you know, his version of criminal reform and Bush's version of criminal, first Bush, not second Bush, yeah, yeah. criminal reform. And then the, the gotcha question is, uh, what if someone raped your wife? Right. Like, so you're talking all this liberally, liberally stuff, but what about when it happens to you? Right. And it's in, and it becomes kind of like what I found in my life is when you start to talk about things like truly having restorative justice, right. Truly having forgiveness in, in however you are defining true, but that the true of those things don't look like what we have now. People throw the yeah. gotcha, the forgiveness gotcha. Well, easy yep. for you to say until they bust into your house and like murder your entire family. Then what do you do, buddy? Right? And yep. you're like, you know, and then that becomes difficult. Like in a pop culture, you know, meaningless pop culture example, right? Well, not so much meaningless, but I'll use what I was seeing recently, like recently being like, couple of weeks as of us recording this, right? So this might come out later, but at the time we're recording this about two weeks ago, Megan Thee Stallion, rapper, had got shot by her boyfriend or whoever she was dating. It's another fucking asshole. And um, who I won't give um, any credit to his name, but he's a dick, right? And she, she went through all this stuff where people didn't believe her. And so this, the common story was like, if a woman, Black woman who's a major entertainer very popular person can barely find quote unquote justice. What does justice look like? Right. And so a lot of women were like happy that this happened. Then comes the other side doing the forgiveness gotcha. I thought you were an abolitionist. Shouldn't you not want to see him go to prison? I thought prisons were bad. I thought, you know what I mean? So now you're defending. <laughs> so how do you in our system where it's so much about the revenge or the gotcha, how do you factor in a forgiveness that is responsive to that instinct? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think that's really, I think the difficult kind of spiritual and moral challenge of forgiveness is for people to accept that retaliatory violence is not going to restore what they lost. It's not even to make you feel better. I mean, we know from therapists that exacting vengeance, actually those people have worse psychological outcomes in in general, people who exact vengeance tend to have worse psychological outcomes than people who don't, right? And so like, I think what we do want to normalize, and this is why I think the idea of forgiveness as equated with anger abatement or giving giving up one's anger is so dangerous. I think what we do want to acknowledge is like, when people are harmed, they want vengeance. Of course, they seek vengeance. That's natural. It's natural to want to strike back. It's natural to be angry. That's a, a physiological, biological response of our bodies, right? Like, like, of course, it's it's normal and understandable to have that. But we, what we can't do is try to to condemn folks like like in the Dukakis debate or Megan Thee Stallion, right? Like, and say like, oh, if you feel the desire for vengeance, therefore you are not interested in transformative models of justice. No, that just means you were hurt. 
Of course you want that. That's what happens when people are hurt, right? And this is like the kind of evil genius of a white theology and a white kind of morality, which does equate forgiveness with giving away of anger, right? Because on the one hand, it gets to structure a whole criminal justice system around the idea of retaliation, right? And where punishment is a necessary part of justice. But on the other hand, it gets to condemn the anger of people who have been justly, who are righteously angry. So one of the examples I look at in the book is a very famous philosopher whose work I respect tremendously. Like I'm not trying to throw shade at philosophers on your on your podcast, right? But Martha Nussbaum is this very famous philosopher who wrote a book a couple of years ago called Anger and Forgiveness. And she looks at forgiveness as sort of a veiled form of anger. I don't need to go into her argument a lot, but there's one really problematic part of her book, at least I think it's really problematic, when she looks at the, the surviving families of the Charleston shooting and, and their offer of forgiveness. Not all of them offered forgiveness. That's important to say. Some of them refused to offer Dylan Roof forgiveness, the shooter forgiveness, but a couple of families did. But what's interesting is in their offer of forgiveness, at least one of the families in interviews afterwards, this was suggested as well. They said, I'm still angry, but I forgive you, right? And the way that Nussbaum read this is that she's like, oh, well, you know, these folks, their forgiveness wasn't pure because they still had anger, right? And that just, that troubles me. That's like, I'm looking at a white philosopher who's looking at a, a black victim say, I forgive you, but I'm still angry and can't hear the angry part, right? I don't want to hear the angry part. And I worry about why we don't want to hear the angry part because one of the other philosophers, an older philosopher, I look in the book and someone Nussbaum reads, this guy named Joseph Butler, he says, anger is actually a sign that we've been harmed. And anger is morally important because anger tells us when we need to right a wrong, right? And so you have black victims in a courtroom saying, I am angry, I forgive you but I am angry. And then the Martha Nussbaum says, oh, I'm not sure that's actually pure forgiveness. And then the media narrative afterwards says, oh, the families forgave, the families forgave, but don't talk about the anger. Yeah. Right? Like we need to talk about the anger because the anger is the sign that something is still there. And if we don't allow people to say, I'm angry and I forgive you, then we both get to, to like condemn them as vengeful if they are angry and dismiss their forgiveness. Or when they say, I forgive you, ignore their anger. Right. And either way, we get off the hook and don't actually have to redress the harm that has been done. And I'm, I'm glad you brought up Charleston because it's, it's, it's very early in the book. It's like in the intro, you kind of frame, frame that a little bit of that conversation. And, you know, I remember that it wasn't that long ago, so it's not hard to remember, but yeah, yeah. it, it kind of brings me back to kind of my little facetious comment where I was like, you know, black people be super religious. Right. And so sometimes I wonder as a non-religious black person, and you mentioned Ta-Nehisi in, in this as well. And I kind of fall on the Ta-Nehisi side of the fence where I, I kind of look at that. And because I know us, sometimes I yeah. wonder if it's like, come on, bruh, like you can't be serious right now. Right. And it, another case that it reminds me of, because I wrote this in my notes was when that a white cop in Texas killed some, some guy in his, like she walked into his house and killed it. Right. And then she's in court and it's a black judge. And then they go crying together. And I'm like, come on, lady, are you for real right now? Cause I'm like, I would never see that if yeah. it was some black dude who killed somebody, we ain't going to be up in court here crying, talking about, I hope you make it. And all this kind of stuff. Like, no, not going to happen. So sometimes for these folks, I'm like, are you performing is this like, is, has forgiveness reached such an elevated status that you feel by doing this, you're scoring some sort of points, right? Like, I don't know what the scorecard looks like, but I'm just saying is my visceral reaction. Not, not because 
I believe in the punishment part because I've already made it clear that I don't. I have a problem with the performance part, <laughs> right? Like, who who are you doing this for, right? And I think it leads me to ask, like, A, that part, the performance part, so put a pin in that question. But then who has a right to be angry? It, it kind of feels like a lot of folks who have been traditionally wrong, whether it's like Black people or or women or other minority groups, always have to be the ones that are like, it's all right, man, I forgive you, and be not upset about it. Yep. Right? So how do, how do you reconcile that one? Or how do we think about that? <laughs> that phrasing, like, it's all right, man, I forgive you, and be not upset about it, like, that's not forgiveness to me. I don't think that's what forgiveness, I, I don't think that's what forgiveness looks like, because it's not all right. And I am still upset, but I'm not going to retaliate. This is why the definition is like non-retaliation, right? So, and this is why, you know, I, you know, as a, as a person who's not black, right? Like, I, I don't want to try to analyze the kind of performance of these families, right? And I've never spoken to these families. I don't want to try to. Yeah, but it's, it's a general, it's a general. To interpret their intentions. Yeah, I know what you're saying, right? Yeah. Not calling their, I don't think it's like they scripted it. Yeah, right. But but <laughs> But for me, when I come to their examples, like. Anthony Thompson, whose whose wife was killed, said, if the state puts him to death, I got no problem with that. He is not part of our life anymore. I got nothing to do with him anymore. Like, I'm moving on. I forgive him. Right? Like, to me, that's, I don't know who, like, what that, to me, that's a rich statement that I want to explore more. Because for him, it obviously doesn't mean reconciliation. He's not trying to, he's not saying, it's all right, man. Right? I'm not upset anymore. He's saying, like, this is actually a gaping wound that nothing that happens to him is going to close. If the state decides to do something to him, fine. That's that's on the state. Like they all gonna do their thing. I need to move on, and moving on means getting Dylan Roof out of my life and trying to deal with this hurt. And and I think that's also him saying like it's not like he had the opportunity to exact vengeance in that situation in that at that arraignment or whatever. But also saying that like retaliation is also not going to close this wound. And this is why it's linked to I think what you're saying about about punishment. I mean, I share to to kind of help fill in your listeners. In the introduction, I talk about this moment. I was reading an interview with Ta-Nehisi Coates, who's a thinker I really greatly admire as well, and who sort of metaphysically, like I actually, you know, I'm religious, but I, I don't have super deep metaphysical commitments. So I, he's a person I agree with in, in most things. But he looked at the scene. He saw these families offering forgiveness on a TV in this restaurant where he was being interviewed. And he said, is that real? I question the realness of that. And this, the thing is, what I want to what I want to ask is like, okay, what's, what's the thing he questions? And if it, the question is like, are, are you trying to say to these folks that you're no longer angry with Dylan Roof? Because I can't believe that. But that's not what they were saying because they said, I'm still angry, right? Are you saying to these folks that it's all right? Uh, I'm not upset anymore? No, because they're saying it's not right. Like people said, you cannot give me back what you took. You will never, this will never be right. I'll never be right again. They said that to Dylan Roof. So what they must have been saying, and I forgive you, perhaps there was this like, this is what I'm supposed to say. And I'm performing this thing that my religion teaches me to say. But what it also, I think, I think what it implies and what it means is that, oh, you must be able to be angry and still say this thing. You must be unready to reconcile and still say this thing. So if if you can say this thing and still have anger and reluctance to reconcile, what else can it mean? And I think what it means is like, vengeance is not going to fix this because what you took was was too precious to be restored by vengeance. So we're going to have to fix it some other way. We're going to have to mourn this rather than participate in some magical thinking, which can restore. And by the way, like I think the American criminal justice system is deeply indebted to that magical thinking, which is like, oh, you'll pay your debt to society. We'll punish you and you'll get out and I'll be right. What actually happens is like, no, actually everything is worse. 
more communities have been destroyed, more people have been hurt. The original wound has not been closed. We've just made many, many more wounds, which then fester and then bleed to more wounds. Instead of taking a like a mournful approach to like, let's how do we how do we actually live with this harm rather than imagine we can fix it? And the debt is never paid, right? Like once you're once you're in that system, you're it's like a scarlet letter, right? Like you're it has it makes everything on the back end of it harder, right? And that's also frustrating because people will say, oh, well, they're a criminal, right? Like when you bring that up, they're like, oh, well, so I'm supposed to feel bad for them. They're a criminal. I'm like, but then they already go to prison for that? Like that, that was the point, right? So like at the very least, there should be like clean slate now. Like, why am I bringing this up, right? Like at the least, right? Yeah, that's right. You served the time. I shouldn't even have to know this, right? But it's, I, I want to talk about the retaliation piece because- I think retaliation is interesting because I want to I want to try to define that a little bit more, right? Because to take it away from necessarily the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, and when we are talking about these societal harms, these sort of forgiveness slash reconciliation harms, when people put, for example, on the table for reparations, right? Yep. To a certain extent, that is trying to assess a numerical reckoning with the harm done to formerly enslaved black people right so they're saying you know there's a there's a number right that we could try to get at here and many people wholly reject that argument right they will say isn't it didn't we apologize for this right and it'd be like well did you, no <laughs> did you <laughs> right like i missed it yeah but what i'm what i'm getting at is that some of this idea of retaliation isn't just in the physical it's in yeah social redress right and we're and we're seeing more and more of a pushback against anything that attempts to reckon with those wrongs yep. and to your point about us acknowledging and moving forward with this pain together i would i would argue in more recent years we're retrenching even further away from that, right? There's less books being read, right? Everything is critical race theory, so it has to be eliminated because it's painful, right? Right? Like when I when I listen to these these people with their school boards, they they say that all the time. I read their arguments, right? They they're like, "Look, yeah. why should my kid come to school and feel bad for being white when they read, you know, Uncle Tom's Cabin or yeah. whatever it is," right? Yeah. And and to me, all of this again comes to these same concepts that we're talking about, yep. right? Forgiveness and retaliation. What, yep. is, what does that look like? Is retaliation affirmative action? You know, is retaliation, you know, reparations? Like, I don't know. Yeah. So to me, this is, that's, this is a great question as well. And I think it's a, it's for me, giving up the fantasy of retaliation is actually crucial to having and affecting real reparations. I believe in reparations for slavery. I think that we're about, you know, 150 years behind on that, at least. The I think the, the reason why I think letting go of retaliation is essential to thinking about reparations is that the whole thing about retaliation is like there's a sense of, of like for like. The talus part of retaliation means equal. Like you harm me, the only way there's justice is if I harm you the same way back. You take something from me, the only way there's justice is if I give something back to you. But that raises the question, what if there's a harm that can't be compensated? Right, chattel slavery in America like cannot be compensated. That harm, there's not, there's no amount, there's nothing 
because it's too much. It's too many lives. It's too much history. It's too many, right? And then if it can't be compensated, then the people people say like, well, then all you can do is move on and forgive because since it can't be compensated, right? If forgiveness is about like giving up anger and it's an alternative to retaliation because retaliation is like the thing that we can't pay, then I guess we have to forgive and move on and not be angry anymore. That's where we end up, right? In this this situation where like we go to school boards and no, you can't be angry anymore. I can't pay that back. This can't be undone. So you just have to let go of it because I can't pay, right? If we get rid of the idea that the only form of justice is one where we pay back exactly what we took and instead to have moved to a form of justice, which is like, oh, maybe justice is also about mourning what we acknowledging what we can't, what we have broken and cannot fix, and then mourning that, and then trying to move forward meaningfully with the truth of that thing that's broken, then you can start imagining how reparations could work. Because then your reparations are not a compensation in the simple sense of a one-to-one payment. Then your reparations are like, oh, we need to think of an amount that is sufficient to signal how deep this we acknowledge this wound to be, right? Like, it has to be symbolically, because it can never be actually sufficient to the harm that was caused. It has to be symbolically sufficient to the harm's caused. Like we have to give enough and offer enough in reparations to signal that we recognize the full seriousness of the harm that we caused. And part of the size of this amount will be signaling to folks that we realize that no amount will ever be sufficient, right? So I teach at Harvard University. Harvard in the spring released its Legacy of Slavery report where we we did several years of research, several faculty members and students, a committee, figuring out like how many people were enslaved by this university and how much that how much enslaved people contributed to the building of this university, not just on our campus here in Cambridge, but also in the investments that wealthy people made in the Caribbean and built the wealth of the school, right? And the the university, as part of its pledge after this report came out, offered a hundred million dollars to try to effect some reparations. Now, the hundred million dollars does not undo what was done, right? And the point of it was not to undo what was done and to say, oh, now that we're even, we can move on. On the contrary, the point of it was to say, like, we can never get even. The, the wounds are too deep. This is supposed to be a sizable enough gift for us to signal that we know that we can't undo it and to actually build something new, right? So so for me, like, yeah, for me, reparations are crucial and repair is crucial. And I think letting go of the idea that there is some punishment that can compensate for a loss is crucial to us actually having the honest conversation about what, what reparation is, which means going to those school board meetings and saying, yeah, we are supposed to hurt. There's this, there's this massive wound at the heart of our country that we need to talk about. And that's part of who we are. And that that's mourning. Like we, we cannot move on from it and live with it unless we learn how to move on from it and live with it. And the work of repair and the work of reparation is us acknowledging that rather than setting it aside or putting it under the table. Because the truth is like, you know, yeah, like, like there are some harms which can't be paid. And so even if we came up with a number and paid it, it would still have been done. Like the, it, the fact of that history would still be there. And so the, the reparation amount can't be about undoing. It has to be about building on a, building a future, a foundation for the future. And that, and that future is, is critical, right? Like we, we're existing on stolen land, right? The indigenous genocide, right? And, and people always, you know, like you said, they throw their hands in the air, like, what, what are we to do, right? I'm yeah. like, well, a lot of land still floating around, right? Like, that's right. That's right. <laughs> seems like there's a few things we can do, <laughs> and it, right? And if the only, but if the only alternative, right, if the only way to to move forward is to give everything back, right? Then, of, like, of course, that's not going to be politically viable. And so we say, like, oh, we're not going to do that. Let's do nothing. 
that's the wrong answer, right? Oh, we we can't give it all back. We can't undo what's done, but we have to take seriously the harm that was caused. Like then you actually actually get into, and I think Ta-Nehisi Coates actually writes really eloquently about reparations in this way. Like now we have to actually get into those serious work of thinking about how do you compensate for something that can't be compensated. And that's actually the work of healing and reparations is talking about the brokenness that can't be healed, but then trying to figure out how we live with into a future and into new futures alongside the truth of that brokenness. And I want to get into, again, that that notion. I mentioned it before, but it probably got a little lost as we were kind of sure, going sure. back and forth, which is, you know, who who gets to do the work of forgiving? You know, one of the this is kind of connected to maybe the retaliation piece, and then I'll, I'll rope it back yeah. in. Like when Obama was president, right? And, you know, watershed moment for a lot of reasons, but I think a, a watershed moment on the right, right? Like, you know, to me, history is not a function of steady progress. It's sort of, you know, one step forward, two steps back, kind of counter, one movement leads to counter movements. And I think we're seeing the repercussions of, of the counter movement, right? I, I've I've already had um, folks on the show kind of discussing like white Christian nationalism and all of these movements that have that have reached like a fever pitch. I think ever since Obama, right? And part of of my reasoning for why Obama is so scary to these people, because I mean, let's face it, Obama's like about the least threatening black guy I could think of, right? Like <laughs> if I was if I was making like. A, a cast iron mold of like a non-threatening black dude, it would yeah. look very much like Obama, even before I knew who Obama was, right? right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm like, if you're afraid of this dude, goddamn, you are just yeah. afraid of a lot, <laughs> right? So I say all that to say that I think part of why white people freak out over black people having power and particularly a person like him symbolizing like now you're the president yeah. is this deep kind of understanding, even if subconsciously, that they're afraid that if Black people or Latinos or Indigenous get power, we're yeah. going to do to them what they did to us. Like, I think they're just like, yo, we can't let them have the, the steering wheel <laughs> because if we give them the steering wheel, it's going to be like turnaround. So on some level, they know how fucked this shit is. And that's why they resist the power and they react to such a fever pitch to it, right? So a theory, right? So having said that and framed it that way, it still always seems that when there's forgiveness being talked about, it's those who are aggrieved doing the forgiving, not those who have harmed kind of you know, asking for it, <laughs> right? So um, it seems like sometimes there's an uneven power dynamic. So I want to give you an opportunity to kind of share your thoughts on that unevenness. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, and I think that's a, I, I, all I can do is condemn that on the folks with power who refuse to ask for forgiveness, right? I do think forgiveness, I think pursuing non-retaliation is the right moral choice. I want to qualify that and say a little bit more about that. Um, and so I can only commend the folks who do who do offer forgiveness, often while condemning the folks who ought to be seeking it and don't ask for it. But like what you name is not, it's not even like secret or subtle. Like one of the people I quote in the book is uh, the, the guy who wrote The Wizard of Oz. I can't remember his name right now, but he- oh, um, Frank Baum. Yeah, Frank Baum, right? And like he, he had these editorials. I talk about them in the book when I discuss a particular novel, which is set in uh, among indigenous people in the United States, the Ojibwe community in, in the upper Midwest. He writes about how like, like, he's like, we need to exterminate them. 
because if they treated us, if they treat us the way we treat them, if their justice works like our justice, where the only the only just response is vengeance, then they need to kill us. So our only option, like he says this on the page in an editorial in an American newspaper in the 19th century, we must exterminate them because we're lucky that their justice doesn't work like our justice, which is based on vengeance. Because if it did, and when it does, if they start adopting our tactics, their only solution will be to kill us back. So our only solution is like, it leads to like these genocidal, right? So it's not even like secret. It's actually on the page in American history, which is, which is terrifying and horrifying and neat why those folks need to be asking forgiveness. So you're right. It actually is far more often the practice of folks without power than the practice of folks with power. And all I can do is like, like you name that and lament it. But I also want to say like, this is where like the religious part of it becomes important for me, Mm -hmm. which is also like, it's not just about, for me, forgiveness is not just about like trusting or forgiving the other or the other seeking forgiveness. It's also about what I will seek forgiveness for, right? So one of the one of the figures I look at in this book is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who is a German theologian from the early 20th century. He wrote very eloquently in the in the early 30s about Christian pacifism, about Christians should not use violence, and then participated in an assassination plot against Hitler and went to prison and was executed just before the liberation of the camps. And he wrote a lot while in prison about Christian ethics. And he doesn't say this on the page necessarily because of course he's not going to write in his journals, oh I have I tried to kill Hitler, right? Um, but you can see him trying to, like, kind of making an, an explanation to his future readers about how he could make this big explanation for why Christians should be pacifists and then try to kill somebody, right? Yeah. And what he says, and basically... I'm sorry he missed. Yeah, and, and the, what the conclusion he comes to is that is that we live in a world that's too broken that you can afford to be morally pure, right? Like, we, if you're a Christian, you have this command from God, you shall not kill, and you also have a command from God to protect the weak and the vulnerable. And here we're in a situation where I cannot do both. That's not the world I've been given, right? And if and if all I will allow myself is to be morally pure, I will do nothing and fail in both counts, right? And so he said, what I have to do is do one of the things, in which case protect the weak and vulnerable and try to kill Hitler, right? And afterwards, I won't say, oh, I am morally pure because the right thing to do was to kill Hitler. What I'll do afterwards is say like, I'm repent and ask forgiveness for killing this person because I had to do it. It was necessary, not justified, right? It was necessary, not morally good, right? And I think having a robust theology or approach of forgiveness, I mean, for a person who's not religious, just the idea of like in a world where we cannot be morally pure, we need forgiveness because we're going to do some bad things in order to protect people, right? We have to take some, right? And so like, and, and the reason I bring up Dietrich Bonhoeffer in that chapter is because the novel I read in that chapter, the novel I look at is Gilead, which has a character in it named John Ames, who's kind of a stand-in for John Brown, right? Yeah. John Brown, who did the same thing. He was like, we must protect the righteous, right? And it, it acted out in violence, right? And so the idea is like not we're lauding violence as good or God is commanding violence. On the contrary, what we're saying is the world is too broken and morals are too broken that our responsibilities are going to sometimes lead us into situations where we cannot but do a wrong thing. And the aftermath of that, rather than celebrate that wrong as a right, we should lament that wrong. Right. And that's, I mean, you think about like sort of ticker tape parades after military conflicts, right. Or how we talk about military conflicts at the large scale you're talking about. And we tend to get behind the troops and say, oh, this was the right thing and a good thing. Let's celebrate them because they did a virtuous thing. Actually, what a lot of troops when they need coming, when coming home is therapy to kind of think about the awful things they had to do. Yeah, that, And we should take a posture of lament and mourning. Like, we are sorry that you had to do this. 
let's take care of you now and try to heal from it rather than pretend it's a virtue, right? And, and to me, forgiveness is really important there because what we're saying is you can be forgiven for what you had to do. You had to do it. And forgiveness is part of moving on from it. So, I mean, I am, I consider myself a pacifist. I don't believe in violence. I don't believe in retaliation or punishment in the prison abolition and all these things. But I also know that like the idea or ideal of a moral purity is really dangerous and leads us to avoid taking the responsibility we need to take. Absolutely. I'm I'm all about that John Brown energy. I tell folks all yeah, the time, right. John <laughs> Brown right. and Nat and Nat Turner, right? Like, and I and I love for them to go do the Wikipedia after and figure out who those people are. I love going into rooms being like, I'm bringing that Nat Turner energy and then let them let them check out who Nat Turner is so they recognize, right? But you know, I, I would probably consider myself the same, right? Like I always jokingly say, look, you come to Brooklyn, then we have a conversation. I, but I'm not going anywhere you know, to fight anybody for any reason, particularly the reasons being offered up, yep. you know, in the, in the past. Yeah. Killing Hitler and Nazis. All right. I'm on board with that. Most of this other shit ain't been that. Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah, that's right. That's right. It's, it's been a lot yeah. of sketchy, sketchy reasons. Right. Absolutely. And those actions, those reasons are transmuted into virtues. Right. If you think about just like the way we think about entering conflict, instead of like thinking about like the argument for the Iraq war or something, it's about like, how do we do the right thing? It's usually like, what's the right thing to do here? Instead of like, what's the wrong that we must take, even though we wish we didn't have to, right? Like, what's the wrong we like that? Then you can see something like engagement in, in Nazi Germany and saying like, this will be hugely destructive and millions of innocents will die, but we must do it to protect other innocents. And then we'll afterwards will lament. That's a very different kind of posture than sort of the Christian just war tradition, which is like, oh, sometimes taking violence is the right thing and you're a saint for doing it, right? Oh, yeah. And it's devastating, right? Yeah. There's no reckoning of what you're doing on your side that's fucked up, right? So they're, they're, you're looking for like equivalencies where there might not be any. And this is, this is kind of like a, a silly a silly thing, but it's always in my head. Like I remember Van Halen in its second incarnation had um, a video called Right Now. And it was kind of like pretty popular in that, I remember that yeah. second wave of Van Halen's popularity. And it was sort of animated, a bunch of clips and stuff like that. And I always remember this one portion of the video where, you know, because they're showing all these different right nows and, and then they yeah. talk. And then they have like these stick figures and there's like one that's kind of on his hands and knees and the other stick figure standing there and another stick figure comes and pushes the other one over. And they're like, they're like, right now your government is doing things you think other governments do. <laughs> right. Yeah. And yeah, I, I always, that, yeah. I always remember that because it's like a perfect synopsis of like American foreign policy. And you, and you mentioned this in the book, right. At the same time, we're marching to war against the Nazis and, and the other Axis powers, we're taking away the rights of, of Japanese American citizens here in the United States. We have a segregated armed forces. We need someone like Robert McNamara helps figure out how to firebomb, you know, all yeah. civilian targets in, in Japan. They do the same thing in Germany, you know, low flying, high intensity bombing, this burn Dresden <laughs> to, to the ground, right? Yeah. But all of that is seen as, hey, good. It's heroic and virtuous, right? Rather than something else. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of- Yeah. Heinous war crimes. <laughs> yeah. Like when I, a lot of this like comes out of my Japanese identity, right? Because I, I my mom is an immigrant to this country in the, in the early seventies, but, but she grew up in post-war Japan. And I, I think about sort of, you know, like the, the, 
the atomic bombs and like the targeting of civilian populations, like the deliberate targeting of civilian populations, the trying to kill a hundred thousand women, children, and old people, like with these bombs, and not just in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but also firebombing throughout Japan and also in Germany, right? And then I see, you know, they, at the time they they don't call them this anymore, but it, because of the German history. But in America, they called what they did to the Japanese concentration camps, right? Like now, that's not to make an equivalence between what happened in the U.S. and what happened in Germany. But what happened in the U.S. was bad, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it was racially motivated, right? And I've written this elsewhere, not in this book. But then, like you said, like the Van Halen thing, like your country is doing things you think only other countries do. Like I can't get real far with that as a Japanese American or as a person who's who holds my Japanese ethnicity and heritage close to my heart without also saying, oh, Japan was doing awful, awful stuff Absolutely. throughout Asia, war crimes everywhere, right? Like, and so like, again, moral purity is a problem. Like when, when we say, when we transmute the, the things that we have to do, but which we didn't into virtues, then we start to elevate them. And then it becomes really gruesome and terrible. And, and only a posture of forgiveness, which is like, not like, this is why I think forgiveness is really important thinking about being able to be forgiven when I must do something I wish I didn't have to do, right? Because if I don't believe that, if I don't believe I'm forgivable, or I don't believe that forgiveness is important when I have to take these necessary actions, then what I have to do is transmute that wrong into a right, right? And then I have to say like, oh, the wrong is actually right, so nobody needs to forgive me, rather than saying, oh, this is a wrong I had to do, please forgive me, right? And then you can actually deal with the wrong and deal with like the the traumatic aftermath of mutual harm. And forgiveness helps you set the record straight, right? Like the United States can can apologize and rightfully compensate those who had businesses taken away and homes taken away and, and as citizens, right? And Japan can apologize to comfort women from Korea and China. But you know, right. what I what I find that's so frustrating is that nobody wants to say what they did. Because like they don't want it on the record, right? Because because if you're saying, "Hey, man, I'm sorry," then I'm like, "Well, what are you sorry for?" Right? And then you have to name it, but no one wants to name it. So it'll be like, you know, certain things were said, certain things were done, and we're sorry, you know. And it it, it all just feels so incomplete, right? Yeah. And so it's I, I feel like I want I want to ask you this as we're kind of nearing the end here. You know, I kind of jotted down in my fevered notes. Forgiveness, when I was reading your book, it, it sounded to me like it's like a relationship that we're entering into with one another, either as individuals or these kind of bigger entities that we've talked about. And I wanted to kind of get just your reflections on on that. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. I mean, the only worry I have with that is that is this worry I have about reconciliation, right? Like sometimes there may be some folks who who I'm not going to reconcile with and I'll never reconcile with because mm -hmm. I'm just never going to trust them or they haven't earned it. And the only way for me to not retaliate from them is if I stay away from them, right? Like I'll turn the other cheek and then I'm going to go away because, because if I get close to you, I can't trust myself not to act out in my natural anger. Mm -hmm. for, right. And I think that kind of estranged peace is better than a proximate violence, right. At times. Right. And so, and we see this in our personal lives too. Like there's some folks who, who we care about, but we can't be around them. And we just have to accept that sadness that we can't be around them because we'll hurt each other. And that, right. So like, I'm not saying that's good. I'm not saying that's bad. I'm saying it's better than the alternative. Right. But I think it is a relationship in the sense that like, it does mean, uh, so that I'm thinking about that criticism is like the strict sense of like restored relationship. I think it is a relationship in the sense that like, I actually have to think about the well being of the other, even the person that I don't like, even the person that I don't want to be in relationship with. Right. Like I might have to just 
be interested in their flourishing, interested in them like a happy and healthy life. Now, that, that doesn't mean that I think I need to be part of that. It might be like, I hope they figure it out someday, but I can't be responsible for helping them figure it out someday like because they're too toxic. Like It can be that kind of thing. But I think there is something about, I think there is even, even the decision to keep a distance, a safe distance from another person can be about self-preservation and also the preservation of the other. Because what you're saying is you care about the other enough not to get into a cycle of retributive or retaliatory violence, right? And I think that means you have to like, I mean, again, I use a religious, a religious framework for it, which is that I have to admit that God loves my enemy as much as God loves me. But I don't think it needs a religious element, right? I think you you can also just say like, I have to acknowledge that they, even though they are, we are at odds, that they have a basic human dignity, just like I do. Yeah. And for that reason, we need to, to move on. And maybe moving on means moving apart. Yeah. But right. And to me, that's the, I think in terms of acknowledging the dignity of another, regardless of, of what they have done, right? To me, that is relational in some sense, right? Like you're having to acknowledge their humanity in a basic sense. Yeah, absolutely. No, this is, Man, we could do this all day. Like, uh, you know, I, I really, I was so excited when, you know, I, I got the book and and started going through it because like I said, I think it's a topic that touches so many things in our lives, both our direct kind of personal lives, our our larger societal life as as people. You know, we are the state, right? Like, you know, we, we pay our taxes. We you know what the, what the state, when the state does violence, it does violence in our name, right? Whether it's the carceral state or, you know, bombs dropped on, on Nagasaki and Hiroshima or yeah. conflicts today, right? Like yeah. that violence we're all responsible for in one way or another, because like you said, human dignity is what this is all about. And I'm a big fan of human dignity. Um, so I'm, I'm going to skip, you know, off the dome as a section because we spent so much good time talking about this stuff. I didn't even want to stop, Okay, but I, I will include the drop. Oh, you know what? Before I get to the drop, okay, I'm going to take yeah. a, an addendum. Uh, this is another pop culture reference, right? I can't get away with asking about Will Smith and Chris Rock, right? Topics of forgiveness was all about that when that happened. It is fresh in my yeah. mind because again, yesterday, Golden Globes was on as we were recording this, Golden Globes is on and they had a couple of like Will Smith jabs, right? Even though this shit happened like over, almost a year ago. Yeah, yeah. We got to go back to the well. Right. And everybody was talking about who should forgive who, you know, Chris Rock said fucked up shit, but Will Smith went another direction. Like who owes who the apology, who owes who forgiveness. So scorecard, you're the expert. (laughs) Yeah. The slap heard around the world. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, this is the thing again about forgiveness, which is that in so few cases is harm one directional. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, in some cases it is right. Or the scale is so extremely different that it's, that is effectively one directional, but in, at the social level, at interpersonal level though, like it's very rarely like one directional or in like when states war each other, it's very rarely one directional. I mean, I would say in terms of non-retaliation, if forgiveness is non-retaliatory, is non-retaliation, like taking a posture of non-retaliation towards the one that harmed me, they owe each other that, mm-hmm. right? Like, I think that Chris Rock said some stuff he shouldn't have said. I think that Will Smith shouldn't have retaliated the way he did, right? But at some point, you if the only solution to this, to return harm for harm, then this doesn't end. Yeah. Now it's Chris Rock's turn to return harm. And then it'll be Will Smith's turn to return harm. I mean, one of the philosophers I look at the book, Hannah Arendt, just talks about how like forgiveness is just sort of like this stop in a retributive cycle of violence. Like mm-hmm. at some point, someone, for a reason that is maybe not even rational, just decides this cycle needs to stop. Because 
there isn't a balancing going on. There's an escalation. So that, and so I think they both owe each other the idea of like halting retaliation. Now that doesn't mean they don't they don't get to be mad at each other. Yeah, absolutely. Right. It doesn't mean that they need to suddenly become friends. Right. What they owe each other morally is not to to keep escalating. And you know, and they haven't. I mean, it, like they right they 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 haven't. And so like yeah. That's my scorecard. So yeah, it's tied, I guess. <laughs> That's a great scorecard. And, and you know, someone tie goes to the winner, right? Maybe everybody's right. a winner at the end of the day. So That's now, right. now I, I had it in my notes and I didn't want to leave without at least addressing it because it's a little funny anecdote and, and most listeners can relate to it, right? Um, so the drop is an opportunity for us to share anything at all with, with my listeners. It doesn't have to be anything super heavy. It could be anything. And my drop is to spend more time with bell hooks. And I feel like I've mentioned bell hooks like a thousand times on the show. So this is not going to be new, but a little bit over a year since she passed away, yeah. she was someone who I, I dreamed of having on the show. Right. And I never tried to have her on the show, which then was a source of regret. Right. Cause I was like, damn, maybe I, sh- maybe I should have sent that email. Right. Like I could have, Maybe I'm sure she has far more important, had more, far more important things to do than talk to me, but maybe, right? But, you know, the the further I get away from her passing, the more I find myself engaging with her work. So the the drop is less about any one particular work of hers, though her all about love is one that has really yeah. not left my metaphorical bedside because I carry books everywhere, but, you know, yeah. like to say they're on the bed, they're on the bedside. And it it just seemed appropriate with the conversation around forgiveness because love is is such a central organizing idea for me. And it seems like it's connected to the conversations that we're having. So Bell Hooks was a master of the form. And so engage with Bell Hooks and that's my drop. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the the fourth definition of forgiveness I use in the book that I could have used also is that forgiveness is the judgment love renders. Mm. Right. It's, it's, it's saying you wronged me, but it's, now, what are we going to do about it in a loving way rather than a hateful or retaliatory way? Absolutely. Yeah, my drop, um, I, you know, I, I, one of the things I do in the book, because I study religion and literature, is I look at literary sources. And in particular, I look at sources which aren't, which aren't religious in and of themselves, uh, necessarily. And it also affords me the opportunity to kind of move outside the quote-unquote Christian tradition, or at least how it's conceived as effectively white European towards other communities and how they work these things out. So I look at Louise Erdrich and uh, Native American communities. I look at Toni Morrison and African-American community. But the, the I think it's the recommendation I'll give is, is Kazuo Ishiguro, who's an author who won the Nobel Prize a couple of years ago. And the book of his I read in this book is probably my favorite of his books. I just mentioned it because we talked about fantasy to start. But it's the only book that kind of delves into fantasy. He does science fiction-y type stuff sometimes. Mm-hmm. But this book, The Buried Giant, I think is a really beautiful book. It takes place in Arthurian, India, Arthurian England. There's some dragons and ogres and stuff, but that's not the biggest part of it. It's mostly just about like how we live with wrong and at both the micro and macro level, like interpersonally when we've wronged each other, but also what do you do when whole cultures have harmed each other deeply? Like, how do you live with that? How do you live through that? How do you move on from it? And it's a really beautiful book. And if, if folks know that book and, you know, Ishiguro has worked on these questions of of repentance and forgiveness since the beginning. Like he writes about this in post-war Japan and Nagasaki and people who were part of the fascist regime there. He writes about it in England and people who were complicit in the fascist regime in England. Um, so Ishiguro is great in general, but this book, The Very Giant, is my awesome. draw for your listeners. I, I love it. I'm going to, I I saw it referenced, but I wasn't familiar, but now I'm going to check it out as well. I, I always say my, my, my guests always add 
more and more books to the pile and the piles are <laughs> overflowing in That's this right, house. Yeah. Books are everywhere. Right. Um, yeah. Matthew, I want to, I want to thank you so much for being on, on the deep dive. I want to thank you for your work and your perspective. This was just as exhilarating a conversation as I thought it would be when I was going through the book. It's, it's really a, a very powerful work. I, I hope it's something that again is everyone should be wrestling with these ideas um, because they're they're so essential to the world we want to we want to build. So again, I want to thank you for being with me on the deep dive. Thank you, Philip, for having me and for those kind words about about the book. I hope, I hope I'm glad you enjoyed it. And I hope other people did too. Thanks so much. Thanks. You can listen to the deep dive via Apple Podcasts and our website thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at farflungphil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.